but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 81 of The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And this is our French Open preview episode, where we will be going through the nitty-gritty of the draw, seeing the ins and outs, and making very few predictions, as we tend to do. Yeah, we're going to allow ourselves one big prediction at the end of the episode, so you have to stick around. We're going to tie up a few loose ends, a few etc., and then we're going to do a rant. A well-deserved and earned rant for Margaret Court, <laughs> after she has been popping off this week. Yeah, I guess we have to. We right? are we are the gay podcast, the gay tennis <laughs> podcast. You know, the children look to us, we're told. All right. That was for you, Samuel said this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this French Open draw, well, we've talked about in the, in the weeks leading up to the French Open throughout the clay court season – that so much of what's happening is so wide open, especially on the woman's side. And that played out with the draw. Yeah, I mean, it's a cliche at this point, but it is so true. We have former players saying that this is the the most wide open main draw they've ever seen in a Grand Slam. And it's true. I mean, Serena is out. Azarenka's not here. Sharapova, shockingly, is also not here. And... Even some of the strongest competitors during the clay season, Sigamund is out. Halep is questionable now that she may or may not have torn a ligament, or maybe not torn it, but injured it. She hurt her ankle in Rome. So, I mean, Halep was the odds-on favorite to win, and now it's like, I mean, like, I wrote down 11, 11 players who, if they won, it wouldn't be surprising. Or at least not shocking. But even the way the draw played out on both sides left a lot of holes for anybody to really push their way through. Mm -hmm. The one exception being, of course, Nadal and Djokovic are drawn in the same half. Right. If they had been drawn in opposite halves, then you could make the case that anybody could make the semifinals alongside both of them. Yep. We've seen Nadal Djokovic play semis here, a quarterfinal finals they're destined to draw each other in the french open it's written in the stars where do you want to start the men or the women uh let's start with the women so i mentioned that i wrote down 11 do you want to know who they are (laughs) and i could have even left some people out well first i want to do a little bit of an impromptu quiz with you if you've been following my twitter feed you may know the answer to this oh but while you were sleeping Mm -hmm. last night sandra bullock (laughs) i looked at the top eight seeds from last year and then the top eight seeds from this year. Okay. And there's only three players who overlap. Oh. Who are those three players? They are Kerber, Muguruza, and um, Kuznetsova. Halep, dude. Oh, shit. (laughs) The oft-overlooked Halep. But you were right. Muguruza, Kerber... Kerber was the three seed last year, I want to say. Well, of course, this time around, Serena's out. And, well, 
Well, Vinci, she was one of them. I'm just going off the top of my Vinci. head. Vinci? She was number seven seed last year. Yo. And uh, Radwanska, she's number nine or number ten this year, I mm-hmm. want to say. Uh, I'm drawing blanks here as to, who, <laughs> as to who the others are. Which is to say, there's been a lot going on in women's tennis over the last 12 months. A lot has happened. Yes. Kristina Mladenovic was nowhere near the top ten at this time last year. But you look back and... She and Svitolina actually lost to Serena in last year's tournament, who was the eventual runner-up. So they didn't get as far as we project them to get this year, third and fourth round respectively, but they did lose to uh, the quality player. Interestingly enough, two weeks ago, Mladenovic would have been my dark horse, well, bold pick, but I'm seeing, I'm actually quite surprised as to how many people are mm-hmm. picking her to win. Yeah, she's not a dark horse anymore at number 13. People are picking her to win outright. Picking uh, her in some instances over Kuznetsova. Even the betters. Right. The betters have Mladenovic at higher odds. Or I guess you should say better odds than Svetlana. Yeah, I don't know how that works. But, I mean, this is going on recent form. Because Svetlana has had, you know, not... Not a super memorable clay season for her. There was a semifinal in Madrid where she lost to Mladenovic. Uh, the round of 16 in Stuttgart where she lost to Sigmund. And Sigmund has beaten pretty much everyone in this spring clay season. So, I mean, Kuznetsova has the pedigree. She's won here before. She excels on clay. But her, her run-up wasn't amazing. It was serviceable. It was perfectly fine. Right. And the point is, if you're looking for somebody with the pedigree and in decent enough form to anoint them a favorite, she would be one of my top three easily. Okay. So, of course, there's Halep, who, barring this injury, was far and away the favorite, right? I th- Before Rome. That's still mitigated by her failure to re- to go deep in slams in recent years. Like She, okay. she had the final in 2015, right? I believe that's what it was. 2014 because Sh- Serena Sh- did it in 15 yeah, so there's that there's history at the French Open but if you had said well three years on what has she done right you'd be surprised to know what she's actually done <laughs> yeah the three years on she hasn't been close again but that final in 2014 does say something I think she was so close to pulling it out she is probably the best player on clay at the moment. She moves great on clay. She does have Svitolina as her quarterfinal opponent. Here's the thing. Yeah. And Svitolina, if Halep is not totally healthy, you could make the argument that she's the favorite to win the tournament. And you were the one at the start of the year who said that Svitolina was your breakout candidate. Yeah. So I feel, you have a vested interest in I feel in this. so accomplished right now. Yeah, that is not a great matchup if... Simona is not 100%, but if her ankle is hurting her, Kazutkina is there in the third round, and that is, like, not who you want to see if you're hobbled, if you're not ready to grind it out. Charleston champion this year. Yes. And somebody who can spin, mix pace, have you running all over the place, like, that's just not a match that uh, a player who's not 100% would look forward to at all. First round matches, what are some of the matches that stick out to you? Well, <laughs> Angie Kerber, like, can she get a break? She's not had a great year, and then she draws Makarvo straight away in the first round. I believe her head-to-head against Kate is 7-4. and four. However, 
This is Kerber's worst major. She lost in the first round last year to Burton's, uh, who, you know, had a great showing, made the semifinals. But if there's a top eight seed who is destined to go out in the first round, she's it. Who's destined? I feel like Jorana Conta uh, is... (laughs) (laughs) Fair. That is very fair. Because... Because Kanta has, in fact, never won a match here. To her credit, she's played better on clay this, this year. I believe she's made the run of 16 twice mm. in the lead-up events, so that's not nothing. She is somebody who, credit to her, all the credit to her, she seems to be constantly improving and wanting to improve and doing the hard work. She's a trier, right? She's right. not somebody right, for right. whom her career has come easily, and so I'm not willing to necessarily write her off as one and done in Paris. You know, who mm-hmm. knows? Maybe she'll make the quarterfinals. Maybe. The first round match that I am most looking forward to seeing, and it's not because of the matchup, it's just because Petra Kvitova is actually playing. She's playing Julia Bosserup in She's the first back round. Already. Right. The- I thought there was no way this was going to happen. That when she said, Oh, I'm flying to Paris, I have a press conference, you know, I'll decide. Guys, I might be coming back at the French Open, who knows? Like, it just seemed like she just wanted to get, get her foot back in the water. Mm. You know, touch the clay a little bit, touch a court a little bit, <laughs> you know, be around tennis, and then maybe come back for Wimbledon, which is right. really her her playground. All the news coming out of her camp throughout the spring has been pretty positive. But you really don't know what the truth is until you see her on the court, right? I thought even coming back for Wimbledon was a stretch. Because it just seemed at the time of the the attack that the injury was very serious, and we were going to be lucky to see her on a tennis court ever again. It was a serious injury, but, and, but it just seems like her recovery was touched by the tennis gods. And hopefully she's well enough to come back and not have setbacks. Mm-hmm. And I am thrilled to bits to have her back on the tennis court. She looks happier than I've ever seen her to be at a tennis tournament, and the tennis fandom is equally happy, I think, to see her back. Now, let's talk about the marquee, the cracker of a first-round matchup, Schiavone and Muguruza. Two former champions, one of whom is defending. There's only three former champions in the draw. Yeah. Schiavone, Muguruza, and... Kuznetsova. Mm-hmm. And, uh... You know, Francesca went through so much to get here. It was unclear whether she'd be getting a wild card, given the rubbish that went down mm-hmm. with Rome. And she was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to win a tournament, make another final, and I'm going to qualify. Right. And she did. And in her final swan song at Roland Garros, she draws Muguruzo straight away, which sucks. It really does. And... At this stage in Francesca's career, you expect Muguruza to get through that match. Although she hasn't been in great form, and she is coming in with a neck injury, just when she was sort of turning it around in Rome. Uh, But, man, I'm really bummed about this matchup. I just wanted Francesca to have a little bit of a run here, just to cap off her career at the French Open. But who's to say that it's impossible? Madison Keys plays Ash Barty in the first round. Mm. And let me tell you, Ash Barty does not look like no one-trick pony on one surface. <laughs> because even when she's not advancing 
deep into tournaments on clay or on hard courts. She's not losing six love six one. She's giving everybody a run for their money when they when she mm-hmm. plays them. So Madison girl, you be better be on the lookout because it's been a, a rough go for her in her comeback this year. Yeah, she she has really not uh, performed as I would hope during the spring. But you know what? Grass is around the corner, and I'm sure she's just looking forward to that. Look, Madison made the semis, the final in Rome last year. She did. She lost to Serena, but she has done like next to nothing on clay. Yeah, this I, year. Yeah, but I feel like that has more to do with playing her way back into form from having been off the off the tour for a little mm. while. That's what I would like to think, anyway. Barbara Streetseva, she plays Allison Risk, another player who has been having semi decent results on clay. Allison Risk, when you wouldn't necessarily expect that from her, I feel like. We've moved past the clay court specialization era. Oh, yeah. Where yeah. Even on the no, men's side. Yeah, it's no longer a kiss of death when clay court season comes around. John Isner is winning matches in Rome. Query is winning matches. Mm-hmm. Uh, American players, while nobody would expect them to win the French Open, it would not be shocking to see a handful of them in the second week. Long gone are the days where American players would just skip the entire European swing. It's it's silly. Players have learned to adapt. Unless you're Taylor Fritz and you need to get your your daddy points. Oh, I I haven't been paying attention to him. It's because I don't... he's been gone. He skipped he skipped the clay court season this year. Oh, he's like so uninteresting to me. So, as far as the the quarters go, mm-hmm. if the seats hold true, we're gonna have Kerber against Sveta and Muguruza against Sibolkova. In that in that half, right? Which I think it would be quite shocking if that actually did happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then you'd have Halep playing Svitolina, which I do want to see happen, and Pliskova playing Kanto. Yeah, so let's start at the top. Well, and- let's let's take for granted that Halep plays Svitolina as the matchup that's most likely to happen. Of those other three, which do you think is most likely to happen? <laughs> um, none of the above. I mean... Of those three, Kerber Kuznetsova. Sibokova has had a terrible year. She's also been injured. She has. I mean, I'm not I'm not criticizing her, but she's had a terrible I mean, year. You just say she had a terrible well, year. She has. <laughs> she didn't even play Stuttgart, and she lost in the round of 32 in both Madrid and Rome. She made the third round last year and lost to Carlos Suarez Navarro, who is a very capable clay court player. She's a former semifinalist at she the is. French Open. I mean, her her big coming out was at the French Open in 2009, her first big run at a major. So she can certainly play on the surface, but I would be shocked to see her in the quarterfinals. Because I also think there are a lot of quality players in her section. Uh, there's Venus, of course. There's Gavrilova. Yankovic is a, is a floater, is always dangerous, especially on clay. Uh, and there's Tamea Baczynski. So I think that's, for the way that Sibylkova is playing at the moment, a few too many barriers. The writing might be on the wall for Yelena's career. Mm. The way Venus was able to turn that match against her, I think it was Indian Wells, where Venus looked dead on arrival and came back <laughs> and won that match. Yeah. And Yelena hasn't had a result in a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. The person in that quarter who is most dangerous well there's two of them there's madenovich there's three of them 
<laughs> Look, anybody could come out of that quarter. There's Lucas Baroni. There's Putin Sevo, who is just off her um, rockers at insane. the moment. You saw that rubbish she was carrying on with against Kirstea, right? Did you see Kirstea's interview the day afterward? No. Oh, oh my it god. Was saucy. Like she just put her in her place so calmly and then proceeded to lose her next match. But, you know, no. she had her moment. She said the best revenge is to win and I did. Kirstea has been at the center of mm-hmm. some some controversy this year. And this one she was totally the victim of just I know people find her entertaining like Punseva, but her behavior on court is just annoying. I don't want to moralized, but just the the theatrics and the medical timeouts and uh, it's just too much. I think we're on the same page. We mm-hmm. are not here for that. Yeah. If you are, good for you. Enjoy it because That's fine. I'm not coming, criticizing you if you it's are. It's coming in spades and there will be more. So mm-hmm. Lucic Baroni, maybe a bit of a tough ask for her to get through that quarter on the surface. But then there's Nadenovic. Mm-hmm. Muguruza has to play Skiavone to start. Okay, fine. But then she likely have to play Kantavite, who's been playing well. Yep, has a, a few big, big wins in this clay season. Then potentially Putinseva in the third round. And then Mladenovic in the fourth round. And then one of Venus, Gavrilova, Bachinsky, or Sibolkova in the quarterfinals. Which if you look at that little mini section there... Gavrilova is currently in a final right now. Mm. She's going to be playing tomorrow against Dozer, the first all-Aussie final since something like 2005. Great, great moment. Bachinsky's form has been way off. Okay, fine. But, like, that's that's a pretty crowded area of the draw. And I think that Muguruza is the one who suffers most as the defending champion. Yeah, I, I should mention that Kantavite actually beat her in Stuttgart this year, and she beat uh, Kerber in Rome. So those are the big wins that I'm talking about. And not not like either player was at their best, or at her best. But um, yeah, I think for Muguruza, the pressure is on, obviously, as the defending champion. There's a spotlight on her, and these tough outs are probably not what she was looking for in the first few rounds. It's funny you mention Gavrilova and Stozer, that they're in a final together, because I actually had written down in my list of dangerous floaters, number 22, 23, 24, Lucic Broni, Stozer, Gavrilova. That, <laughs> those seeds, they're not who anyone wants to meet in the third round, if you're a top seed. Wozniacki is injured herself. You could see Kiki Burton's having another run again. Mm-hmm, sure. You could see Petra Kvitova having a run. Like, if she were to make a run, lightning in a bottle, the draw is there for her. Who's to say? I mean, maybe she'll feel so good being back on a tennis court that <laughs> that the mood will just take her. As far as the third quarter, that, you know, this is supposed to be Halep's quarter. She, she's supposed to be getting to the semis easily. But like we said, she may be carrying an ankle injury into this tournament, these these few injuries in the weeks leading up have really turned the women's draw on their head. Svitolina would play Sevastova in the fourth round. I'm assuming that, instead of Madison Keys, because I don't see Madison mm. making it to the fourth round. Vesnina has done nothing since Indian Wells. Yeah. And like, absolutely nothing. She's not going to make noise on clay, I don't think. Carlos Suarez-Navarra is somebody who could make it to the fourth round. She's been yeah. 
a tad resurgent recently. And so it could be Carla against Simona in the fourth round, and then Svitolina and Sevastova in the fourth round, the winners to play each other in the quarterfinal, which mm-hmm. we talked about. And then in the bottom half of that bottom half, there is Kanta, Garcia, Stritsova, Radwanska, Pavlyuchenkova, Vandeweghe, Lauren Davis, and Karolina Pliskova. And Lucy Savasheva, who's not even seated. Take so, your pick. I mean, <laughs> really, this is the quarter that is totally unpredictable. I think we're going to see a really surprising semifinalist from this quarter, but who, who knows? Normalcy could reign and Pliskova could get there. You said that we're going to leave our bold picks for the end, but I'm going to drop mine right now. Okay. Caroline Garcia is going to make it through that quarter. Mm. Well, I'm putting my money where my mouth is because I picked her to be the breakout player on the WTA Tour this year. I feel like she's earned some good karma with (laughs) all the mess Uh that's come her way with Fed Cup this year. And she made the semis this week. All right. All right. I mean, it would be rude of me to suggest that you picked the wrong doubles partner. For your breakout player. Well, I apparently did. It should have been Modenovic. Yeah. (laughs) However, if we're making predictions in this quarter, I think Pavlyuchenkova makes the semis. If it's not Garcia, I'm picking Pliskova. All right. All right. resoundingly pick Pliskova because we can't pay attention to her former slam results anymore. Prior to the US Open last year, she hadn't made it to the fourth round of any slam Mm -hmm. in so many tries. And then she made the finals in the U.S. Open and then again the quarterfinals in Australia when she was, you know, picked by a lot of people to win the tournament. Yeah. And so the fact that she's only made the second round twice in Paris doesn't mean anything to me. Yes, it's not her best surface, but her best days on clay are likely still ahead of her. I agree. And I think she's shown that she's a big time player. Her rise to the top three has been swift. Since she broke out, uh, when? Like, in Cincinnati, basically? She had a good summer last year. She made the final of the US Open, which was really, like, her first deep, deep slam run. And I agree. I think she will play well at Roland Garros. Maybe not this year. but And she's not a natural clay player. And I don't think, really, she's trying to adapt her game to clay, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Listen, if Sharapova can win Roland Garros, mm. Pliskova can go deep. <laughs> It's that simple. Okay, fair enough. I'm just saying I think that of anyone in that quarter, it's going to be Pavlyuchenkova. And I'm I'm sure I'll be proven wrong. But she's, like we said last week, has just been quietly putting together a very strong year. She won Morocco. She won another title. She beat Schiavone there. And uh, last year she made the third round in Paris. She lost to Kuznetsova, who you know, former champion. I just think that she has good momentum going for her. Sad to say it's not looking good for journeyman Agaradwansko. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Max, Max, if Radwansko is, is going to win a major, it's not going to be this one. Is it still clear whether or not she's playing? She's she's opting to play, right? But that, she has had a foot injury. See, that's the thing. I, I fully expect there will be a couple of high-profile pullouts yeah. before the tennis actually yeah. starts. There are a few on the men that we'll talk about. Let's wrap up the women's side. We're not making a prediction as to who is going to win, right? Right. But 
this is, I always struggle with this. Okay. I'm going to give you three people. Mm -hmm. If, if a winner were to, maybe this is a cop out, (laughs) you know, giving myself some leeway, but I'm going to say that the winner is going to come from three people. And then you do the same. The winner of this tournament is going to come from one of Venus Williams, Svetlana Kuznetsova, or Sam Stozer. Who do I think is most likely of those three? No, no, no. That's oh, my oh. three. I, I'm oh. saying at the end of the tournament, one of those really? three will have won the tournament. Really? Yes. Okay. I went I went there. went out there. <laughs> oh, so do you want me to pick three now? Yes. Okay. Svitolina, Venus, and uh, the last one is harder. Uh, Mladenovic. So you didn't really go... However, Mladenovic or Venus have to get out of that quarter. They're in the same quarter. Same with Stozer and Kuznetsova. They're in the same quarter as well. Yeah. Do you want to hear my big prediction? I uh, thought you just said that Pavlyuchenko was... Oh, that, gonna... No, that wasn't the big one. Oh. Well, it's like a compound one. There are several parts. My big prediction is that Kerber does not even get to face Stozer in the fourth round. Stozer is a semifinalist. Possibly the finalist. That's your big prediction? Yeah. I mean... Sam's clay court pedigree is known. Yes. She's a defending But a lot of people think she's over the hill. So that's why this is a, a bolder prediction. Not boldest. I'm not picking okay. like the 100th ranked player, you know. I know a lot of you are probably expecting us to be like, yeah, Venus is going to run through this draw. I'm not about that life where I'm going to be no, putting that jinx on Venus. we don't pick Venus and jinx her. We, I, I've, I don't think I've ever picked Venus publicly. <laughs> Right. To win a tournament. I sure have when I'm filling out a draw. But, you know, she's primed to maybe have a good run. She made the quarters in Rome. If it's one thing we've learned now from Venus's fourth career, is that <laughs> she's at a point, no, miraculously at damn near 37, where there's still endless possibilities for her. Mm-hmm. Realistic possibilities. And yes, it's it's part of the draw being so wide open that it's even more of a possibility this time around, but it's not crazy that Venus could win this tournament. And I think it's important to say that it's not that Venus could sneak in and take advantage of a weak draw. She made the fourth round last year. Mm -hmm. She lost to the eventual champion, Muguruza. She's been putting in quality performances at all of the majors recently. It's one of the most consistent performers at the majors. So this isn't an example of someone taking advantage of a soft spot. Like, this is Venus Williams. She's a former finalist here. Clay is her weakest surface, but wouldn't you kill to have this record on Clay as your weakest surface? So let's move on to the men's side. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the big themes going on on the men's side. Obviously, the biggest one is that Rafa is looking for the 10th title here. The real La Decima. Monte Carlo and Barcelona, that's cute. That's important, record setting. However, this is the big one. And he's he's attempted a few times now, but he is he's a different player than he was when he lost in the quarterfinals to Djokovic. He's definitely a different player from last year when he practically snapped his wrist off. He was playing well in the lead up. He was, but we still do think he's playing better yes, this year. I agree. The, just the performances were more convincing this time. Especially the fact that he won Madrid, I think, 
solidified it for me because that's not a tournament that he's always been comfortable at. What solidified it for me was his beatdown of Novak. Yes. I know we talked about it, and I know you like to say that Novak's off the rails and what have you, but there's a psychological issue at play between the two of them. And even if Novak wasn't at his best, to be able to win that match so handily has to do wonders for Rafa's psyche should they have to play in the semifinals. Agreed. Because I think that Rafa could have let him in if he were less mentally strong at the moment. Rafa's level could have slipped and Novak could have had a chance to challenge in that second set. And it didn't happen. And that's important. It looked also that Novak was maybe going to wrest some of that initiative away from Rafa in Rome Mm -hmm. when Dominic beat let's be real, a tired Rafa in straight sets. Right. And then Novak blew out team I mean, in embarrassing just fashion. Just battered him. And you're like, well, damn. And then Mr. Alex Verov just did the job in the final. Right. It was like, it was not, not so much, well, yes, Novak didn't win. And so that, that, uh, progression was stymied. Okay, fine. But also I think from a general, tennis narrative interest level perspective it makes Roland Garros that much more intriguing for Novak not to have won that title Mm. I think something that I was thinking about with uh for example Sharapova not winning a title in her comeback yet um with with the surprises in Australia with Serena's pregnancy I've been thinking about this this idea of 2017 as like the the expected storylines of tennis are not coming to fruition. It's like the like the fairy tales are not coming true. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, the fairy tales. Roger won number eighteen. It wasn't your fairy tale, right? No, I mean not in a positive or negative way, but the things that seem inevitable which in two thousand seventeen from a fairy tale. Okay, f- I maybe I wasn't speaking okay. well. These the stories that seem inevitable that are going to happen no matter what. Like, for me, Sharapova having a successful comeback was inevitable. I was just resigned to that. It didn't happen. Like, these storylines that ESPN really, really needs. She made a semifinal in in Stuttgart. That's a pretty good return. Yeah. And then she got injured. It just seems like uh, tennis is keeping us on our toes this year. Like, there are no easy packages to put together before the tournament well we were spoiled for all of 2016 with andy and nole you could pencil those two in in the final Mm. pretty much wherever they played and then serena you could pencil her into the finals well she wasn't always winning them but she was she'd get there and then kerber had risen to the task so we had the same faces and those faces now for whatever reason aren't doing it in 2017 Mm -hmm. so that's where it's left room for other people to come in. And I'm enjoying it. Yeah. I've enjoyed the tennis in 2017. I have. I re- I actually really enjoyed the clay swing, in large part because Rafa played so well. But I also have to take some credit and boast a little bit that I said in our preview to the clay season that someone like Alex Zverev could do very, very well in this clay season. You did. Because he his momentum is serious he's a top 10 player now and i expect him to stay there for a long time the last time somebody said those exact same words on this podcast 
was a little over a year ago mm. with Belinda Bencic. So who said that? I said that. Who said that? I said that. I wouldn't because I would never. <laughs> I would never say that. I can assure all you Serena stands that wasn't me. I probably said the same thing about Madison Keys, and she's had a, a bit of a rough go, but I, I think that she will be a, a perennial top ten player when she gets her feet on some grass. They're only on grass for three weeks. Well, I know. Like this whole business sets, of like it sets the tone. You have a few good results. She has two titles on grass. Yeah, it just sets you up for the summer. Okay. Gives her some confidence. I remember thinking and kind of side eyeing you about this very thing on clay, so kudos to you. That's all Thank I'm gonna you. say. Thank you. About that. <laughs> so the other big story, and I'm not super excited about it, and I'm less excited about being wrong. Novak comes to Paris with two new things, Andre Agassi and Lacoste as a clothing sponsor. We spent a good deal of the last episode talking about how, why, about why Agassi wasn't going to be his coach, and we were dead wrong. So wrong. That entire coaching... It was mostly me, I have to... That entire coaching segment was a mess, because we also said that Mario Ancic was born in Church's coach, when in fact, thank you to the correction that we got... On Twitter, it's actually Ancic's brother. So we take that back. Mm. Yeah, and you had me say it. I was the one who said it. I didn't force you to say it. Oh, yeah, but I just trusted you. Mm. That would be like the first time I've made such an egregious mistake compared to like 10 for you. Re- wow. <laughs> I thought we were a team. <laughs> you were the one who just threw me under the bus. I wasn't going to have ever said that to you on the podcast. That was rude. What? Uh, I don't follow. So... Novak and Andre is going to be a huge story for this tournament. Do you think that A, it will last, and B, will it revitalize Djokovic's game? Here's what I think. Novak is making this big play, this multifaceted play, to have everything come together at Roland Garros. And we saw positive signs in Rome. Now he's unveiling Agassi there on the practice court every day. We're seeing pictures press reports nonstop about the two of them. And then he timed it so that it, it's in conjunction with his clothing switch from Uniqlo to Lacoste, right? Mm. So he's coming into the French Open with a whole lot of new. He got rid of his previous coaching team. A huge change, given how long Marian Vida had been with him and mm-hmm. a lot of those folks. It seems like Novak is trying to create this big energy of positivity, toward this one event to kind of change the direction Mm. of what's happened in the last 12 months since he finally won the French Open to complete the career Grand Slam. And what I think for him is that he better not lose early because I think that could have a serious, deleterious effect on his psyche going forward. Mm -hmm. Because I think he's, if I'm reading some of the tea leaves here and making my own projections onto things sure you know i I likely will be wrong but he may be putting all his eggs into one basket i'm shocked that andre is there it to me it doesn't seem like a long-term plan i'm not sure how much of a full-time coach he's going to be it's explicitly stated as a trial thing Mm -hmm. it's not long-term so we'll see that's that's just right but if it works is it going to turn into long-term possibly all right 
Dominic team, you have it here written as he's looking to put a bow on his clay season after being battered by Djokovic. <laughs> that, that is, you see, this is why people think you're messy. No, but you know, I love Dominic, but I think it probably leaves a sour taste in his mouth. He was he was obviously tired. He's playing more and winning more than normal, and he's put together a really impressive performance on clay. Despite not having won any titles, he's actually played better than several people who have won titles. He's lost to Nadal twice. He beat Nadal once, which is something to put on the resume, especially when he's on a run like this. But his performance against Djokovic was just listless. His performance against Rafa was amazing. Right. And his they were amazing even in the matches he lost against Rafa. And so if he comes into the French playing like that then that's what I mean by putting a bow on his clay season. I still think as great as Dominic played in that Madrid final, and how amazing he played for those two sets against Rafa in Rome, I still don't see him being able to put that together for th- to win three sets against Novak or Rafa at the French Open. Yeah. I think that, getting back to Djokovic, he really couldn't have asked for a better draw to play himself into form i just i think he has a clear shot to the quarterfinals his third round opponent is no disrespect to misha zverev but on clay misha zverev is probably the softest third round opponent you could get as the 32 seed he's in a final right now against stan in geneva which is shocking to me (laughs) look zverev misha doing what he did in australia was shocking too Maybe was, we shouldn't discount Misha I'm just Zverev. so surprised that this this surface would work for him at all. Mm. But, I mean, there is Albert Ramos-Vignolas, who has had a great performance on clay, uh, losing in the final in Monte Carlo to Rafa, and also beating Andy Murray. There's Luca Pui, who could stand in the way. But to me, if Djokovic gets to the quarter, his team is is the very best opponent he could get. Someone he has a great record against and whose game just matches up very well for Djokovic. Don't look past Debbie Goffin. I'm telling you, yeah. do not. Because yeah. also, Team and Goffin have developed this rivalry now where they've played a handful of times in recent, in recent years on big stages. Mm. And while Dominic has gotten the better of that to date... Goffa is somebody who, on his day, can give you a run for your money. Yeah. But I do kind of see that as bad luck for Goffin to to draw a team. Yes, it's bad luck until you make it your own good luck. <laughs> right? Okay. Like you, start, All right. You, you do the business and you win these matches. All right, coach. Do you want to talk about the draw? Yeah. Let's do this fairly quickly because I'm... I'm bubbling over for this Margaret Court segment. <laughs> okay. I don't want to have to cut it short because we're running short on time. Okay. okay? Just like the women's draw, the very first thing I see, top seed Annie Murray, huge question mark. Huge question mark, but also huge opportunity if he were playing even semi-decently. I know. He says he's been sick. He had shingles, remember? Yes. And he recovered miraculously, super fast. And I, along with a lot of other people, were saying, really? Like, really? You got over shingles that fast? And I don't think he did. And I guess he had a flu afterward, and it's clear that he's not himself, right? He's made outbursts on court that I can't move. Things are just not working well for him, and I don't think it's completely mental. He's lucky in that 
if Del Potro actually plays, they would match up in the third round and he would get a semi-injured Delpo in the third round. Right. If, if Delpo were healthy, Lord, that could be tricky for him because mm-hmm. you think of Clay being Delpo's worst surface, but he still made a quarterfinal and a semifinal. Granted, it's been years since that's happened. And I think this is the first time he would be playing Roland Garros since 2012 or something like that. Okay. He's missed a lot of slams mm. in the last five years. But that's a tricky one. And now Isner's playing well on Clay. Berdick, too, is in the final as we speak, which he may be a champion by the time you listen to this mm. episode in Lyon. He's somebody who, like, bless him, underperformed to his talent for his entire career, but maybe his best result is still in the future. <laughs> and as now the world maybe. number 14, the spotlight is sufficiently off of him for him to be able to take advantage mm. of it here. But here's what I think. I feel like making predictions. Apparently. <laughs> I think that, well, Zverev drew Verdasco in the first round, which will be tricky. But I think Zverev will get through that, and he will go all the way to the semis from there. Okay. You think he'll get by Cuevas e- easily? Because I don't say easily, but I think he'll get by him. Because Cuevas is somebody who could get through that section. Yeah. He made the semis in Madrid. He made the quarters in Monte Carlo. He did uh, a crass little fellatio hand motion <laughs> at one of those tournaments. Did you see that? I did, yeah. What the hell was... Was he... Asking somebody it for it way. Yeah. in the in the crowd. I hope it was a dude and it was like some bro joke and not some woman. He was. I just, mean, I hope he didn't just spot a woman in the crowd and was like, "Yeah, suck my dick." So classy, so classy. Nishikori is there as a fourth round opponent, possibly for Zverev. Who can count on on K to do anything these days? Man, what well, he missed the first two big tournaments. He has won at Barcelona in the past. He missed Barcelona. He made the quarters in Madrid and famously withdrew and gave Novak a walkover. And the withdrawal was weird because it, was, it wasn't it was like I have an injury now at this moment. It It was more like I want to save myself for future tournaments, which he's done before and is sort of frowned upon. We know he's brittle. We do. So that's the bottom line. Again, anybody can come through that section. <laughs> that's that's what we're telling you in this preview episode. And then in the bottom half of that top half, I look to Stan and nobody else, really. Mm. Because as much as we think of him as a mercurial player, somebody who is inconsistent, that really only rings true nowadays in smaller events. When it comes to Grand Slams, Stan is... One of the more consistent players. He is pretty much a lock to make the quarterfinals. I think I did some research, and of the last 16 slams, he's only failed to make the quarterfinals four times, mm. which is pretty damn good. Yeah, he's currently in the final in Geneva, and we'll know uh, by the time this episode is out, you'll know whether or not he won. He would have potentially defended like he did last year. And I remember last year, we were like, Stan, what the hell are you doing? Right, playing the week before. Obviously, he's playing on home soil. There is appearance fees. There is, you know, home tournament draw appeal. Uh, But you've said so many times that if you want to win a slam, what are you doing playing the week before? Yes, that's been one of your things. And the list is is fairly short of top players who've played the week before and won. Venus did it twice in New Haven to the U.S. Open, which I was 
surprised to learn, because I wasn't following it that closely back then. But hey, it might work for him because Geneva was actually his first quarterfinal since Indian Wells, where he lost the final to Roger Federer. He had a dismal stretch since Indian Wells. So maybe this is giving him the match play and the confidence that he needs. But Stan doesn't really need that. He doesn't. <laughs> right? The other person on the bottom half there is Kyrgios. And we know he's carrying this hip injury. Well, Kyrgios, I've heard, may not even play. Yeah. So but by the time you hear this, he may have withdrawn. I I'm not sure. And even if he plays, he's... You'd like to say he's a type of player that's like, well, he may just show up and win, but if the injury is that much of an issue where he's thinking of withdrawing, I'd be shocked to see him go that far. Yeah. Which sucks for somebody so young and so talented. Agreed. The person to... I think you should look for either Ferrer or Chilich. And I know Ferrer is a bit of a, a laugh-me-out-of-the-room kind of situation right now, given the way his year has gone. Mm. But No, but that would be really cruel. But we've to seen some signs of resurgence and if he's able to play to maybe 75 percent of what he can there's no reason why he can't get through that section right there songa is <laughs> again you will know the result before you right. listen to this episode he's, but in, he's in his first ever clay final which shocked me mm -hmm. which is in france in, in Lyon. Lyon. he is a former uh, i want to say has he made the semis here yes he has okay he lost in the third round last year, but with Songa, as you know, anything can happen. He's one of my faves. I'm going to pick him to go far regardless. Uh, before he started playing in Lyon, I thought he was extremely injured and was just not really in good shape for this, for this tournament, but who knows? The quarterfinal matchups in the top half, Mari versus Nishikori and Stan versus Chilich. Neither of which I think will happen. Uh, Chilich has been overperforming on clay. It, like That's fair to say. Yeah, it, it doesn't really make sense that he should play so well on clay. He lost in the first round last year to an Argentinian player named Trunjaliti. But he won Istanbul. He beat Raonic. He, uh, I mean, he's had pretty good results. Quarterfinal in Rome. Finishing up this top half, first round matches to look out for, Zverev and Verdasco, you had mentioned that. There's also Nishikori gets to play Kokinakis, who is mm -hmm. back at a Grand Slam for the first time in quite some time. And who knew Kokinakis is now hot? Like, how did that happen? He was like one of the most yeah. awkward looking teenagers you'd ever see on a <laughs> tennis court. And now he's a man. So there's that. There's that to look okay. out for. <laughs> and... Fabio Fanini is playing Francis Tiafo, which will be a little bit interesting to see how Fabio plays in his first go as a father. Mm -hmm. Dustin Brown against Gael Mofis. That is a must-watch. Mm -hmm. Just because it's going to be entertaining. You can guarantee it. Even if the score is 6-1, six 6-love, one, six six there's going to be some fun moments there. Right. Two of the, probably the two best showmen in men's tennis. Kind of the most inventive as well. On the bottom half... It's headlined by the two favorites, Nadal and Djokovic. Nadal, in that third quarter, he has Raonic as the other top eight seed. And then in the bottom half, the bottom quarter, there's Djokovic and Dominic Team, which you had said already, mm. right? What's interesting here? Um, what is interesting? I think that Nadal's 
draw could definitely be worse. Yeah, people are talking about Benoit Perrin the first round. I'm not bothered. Yeah, I, John Wertheim said he expects Nadal to get through, but it will be an adventure. And I don't disagree. I, I, I think there'll be some theatrics, but I, I think that he'll get through easily. Simon as a third round is... Nadal's head-to-head is something like 8-1. and one or yeah. I think it's 8-1. and one. At this point in Simon's career, I don't think there's anything he can do that can hurt Rafa, especially on clay. Sock or Roberto Bautista Augut in the fourth round. Again, it's not super worrying to me. Uh, Sock has been having a good season. Those two, Sock and Bautista Augut, when you get up to play Nadal, like, yes, I, I'm going to make an analogy here. It's like when you're carving up a whole chicken. And you're like, okay, I only have your my biggest knife, but I really need the cleaver to make that really clean cut. Mm-hmm. And they don't have that cleaver. <laughs> <laughs> that, wow, that's actually pretty good. Because <laughs> you know I'm a wizard with carving up a whole chicken. Yes, yeah. Raw, cooked, whatever. I'm good with that whole mm-hmm. chicken. And I've just barely learned the different parts of a chicken. You still don't know what a goddamn thigh is. Excuse you. Listen. Excuse you. Listen. When I go to Popeye's, I'm pretty sure I ask for the damn I'm thigh. Pretty sh- you ask for it, but I'm not sure you can identify it. You love the thigh. I know when I get a breast and it's dry as fuck. <laughs> The other section... But before, like, there's Dimitrov and, like, girl, like, you've done nothing on clay this year. You haven't done anything on clay in Roland Garros in, like, ever. Do you know that he has not won a match at Roland Garros since 2013? Mm-hmm. I was shocked. He's making me feel real stupid about my breakout pick because he's regressed. <sighs> it's, it's not going to happen here. No. And he's on one of those roles where he's in the throes of a tough match. As he was against Dominic Team, and then he loses, and then a whole bunch of losses just come flying out mm. afterwards. So then in that last quarter, I feel like we talked about that quarter already. We kind of jumped the gun and did, right? With the team and the Goffin mm-hmm. and whatnot. So like we're done with the men's draw. The only thing left now is for those first round matches on that bottom half. Jack Sock and Year Vesely could be tricky. We mentioned Benoit and Nadal. Dominic Team plays Bernard Tomic, which in another year might have been compelling, but who's to, who's to even say that Tomic will finish the match? And Luca Puy gets to play Julian Benetou in an all-Frenchy first round. And you know what? I'm pulling for Benetou there. He is the hard luck guy on the <laughs> ATP Tour, and right. he's fought a hard, long road back from injury. And he's he's gotten a wild card, okay, but his ranking is getting there. Are we ready for the main course? Sure. So I guess we have to talk about this, right? What do you mean we have to talk about it? <laughs> this is... This, this is, is kind of our bread and butter, right? Yeah, this, this was served up on a silver platter. Yeah, but the thing is, like, it doesn't really make me happy to roast Margaret Court because, um, I don't know, I'm actually sort of sad about the whole thing because I'm just, like, tired of being angry, like, being outraged. But this is something that's important. Yes. It's very important. It's personal. So I guess if you haven't been on Twitter recently or haven't heard about this, Margaret Court wrote a letter to the editor in uh, some Western Australian newspaper, like the Perth newspaper, where she lives, proclaiming that she was going to boycott Qantas, Australia's national airline, because the CEO is in favor of same-sex marriage. And the CEO is actually gay. Mm -hmm. This has set off 
quite the firestorm on tennis Twitter, uh, but there's also been a lot of chatter in Australia and a petition on change.org to actually change the name of Margaret Court Arena. Do you know who perfectly flamed these fires? Hmm. Casey Delacqua. Yeah. This whole, this new article, this new, you know, letter to the editor that Margaret Court wrote came out and then Casey reached into her filing cabinet and pulled out <laughs> the receipt from when Margaret Court wrote about her. And her family and child. Yeah, which seems to be three or four years ago when Casey and her partner had her for their first child. Saying that the usual shit, they love this inner shit, right? Yeah. But what are they doing? They're, they're bringing a child into the world without a father. You know, the whole marriage between a man and a woman thing. You're depriving the child of blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Casey used a photo of that article so we could read it. And then wrote, Margaret, period, enough is enough. And that mm. was that. And that was all that was needed. Because it it suddenly became so personal. Mm-hmm. Because you can, you can write this letter and say, I'm a pastor. I don't believe in same-sex marriage. I'm going to be boycotting Qantas Airlines because they've come out in favor of it. I feel persecuted. Because too many people are in favor of redefining marriage. And you feel bullied because right. we have opinions Literally about it. Literally use the word bullied and persecuted and intimidated. But when Casey added this to the discourse, and I think a lot of us didn't realize it was from so long ago. No. I I don't know how I missed it. Well, I did. Way back have, in 2013 or 14. This is the part that made me sad, I think. But also happy that it reminded people that this is personal and speech that is sort of critical of gay relationships and their right to exist and to procreate. That is personal and that is dangerous and damaging. Because it's not that Margaret was videoed at her church and it went viral. No. She went to this newspaper, submitted this op-ed, targeted used Casey and her mm-hmm. newborn child and her partner. And used partner in scare quotes. Right. As if that's not a real relationship. Exactly. This was not an abstract discussion. This was then very personal. It was an attack, right? It was. And nobody forced her to make this unforced error. Put it that way. It, right? Exactly. Like, this is not like a, a caught in her own domain kind of moment. This is her on the offensive. You don't get to be on the offensive and target somebody's family like that. Use them as an example. And be so damn messy because you are ingrained in Tennis tennis Australia and its history. Your name is on one of the main courts at Melbourne Park, Mm -hmm. right? You are the mother of Australian women's tennis. Well, you are the greatest champion in Australian history, male or female. Right. Uh, they, They can't get rid of you. That's the thing. (laughs) You are then so messy to go within your family and pull somebody out and use them as an example to make your point about same-sex marriage. And then you have the nerve and the audacity to then say, people are making this about my tennis. Listen, Margaret, (laughs) you have this pulpit solely because of your tennis. Nobody would be paying you any mind as some 70-something-year-old 
self-starting pastor in Perth with these ideas if you did not have this platform because of your tennis. So don't don't then play victim. She said on this interview on an Australian TV show that she thinks it's very sad that people are bringing her tennis into it. But, I mean, you brought somebody's family into it. You brought someone's child into it. You told Casey Delacqua that she was basically damaging this child that she's brought into the world because of the the lifestyle, quote-unquote, that she's chosen. And so With you don't, her, quote-unquote, right. partner. And so you don't get to say that on TV that, oh, I like Casey. You don't get to say that. I like her. Like, who gives a fuck? This whole, I love gay people, even though they're sinners and they're disgusting. I don't care. I don't want your love. I do not want your prayers. I want to be able to sit here and clap back at you when you say this shit. And if you follow me on Twitter, like, I probably have aired all this stuff. Like, I think... Like, everything I could possibly say is already out there. <laughs> I have to call you out a little bit because you were sleeping and I made that tweet from our body server account where it's like, you know what? Fuck you, Margaret Court. And you yeah. know, we don't love you, uh, James and Jonathan, two really big queers. And you're like, that was just so crass. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's the point. It's enraging. It is. It is. And, and I- something so vile deserves that kind of response. You're like, well... You know, we should have a more nuanced and an intelligent discussion about. So I'm like, well, maybe on the podcast, but like in that moment, I was mm. fucking mad. Yeah, I get it. And I think something that really set me off. I feel that I may have made someone else collateral damage for this thread that I unleashed on Twitter, and I didn't mean that to be the case. But I have seen a lot about, uh, you know, she's entitled to her opinion, and. To me, that is a a sentence that has no meaning. Because, of course, everyone is entitled to his or her opinion. But where's the context for it? Right. Do you have your opinion in your bedroom with just your spouse that you don't share with other people because you have awareness of the fact that your opinion is Mm -hmm. rancid and you wouldn't dare put that out (laughs) into the public discourse, right? Or are you entitled to your opinion and then entitled to oppress people with it. Yeah, and the thing is, the fact that one is entitled to an opinion is is only a small part of the story. Because an opinion that is expressed publicly has consequences, of course. And so, this isn't an issue of free speech, because in most Western societies, people are allowed to express themselves freely, as long as they don't incite violence. And so I think a lot of people are looking at this from a U.S. perspective, where our idea of free speech is incredibly broad. It covers hate speech, covers cross-burning. The Ku Klux Klan has been defended by the Supreme Court multiple times. You've also made the point, as an American living in Canada, that while in the U.S. you have freedom of speech, in Canada you have freedom from speech. In, In some cases. And in European countries, in certain European countries, that... Freedom from speech is extended much, much further than it is in Canada. And so I think we we need to understand freedom of speech as the freedom of speech is not freedom from consequence. So you're allowed to speak freely without government intervention. That's it. Like, that is literally it. That's, that's all it guarantees. 
You can't be put in jail for something that you say, as long as it doesn't incite violence or hatred in Canada. The thing is, free speech is a very serious right and responsibility. And so with free speech comes the obligation that you deal with the consequences. Like, I think that's enshrined in what free speech is, in my understanding. Just just as I'm allowed to say what I want to say, someone can say what they want to say back to me. Because That's how simple for a long time, free speech has been held in such high esteem because it's given marginalized voices the opportunity to say things mm-hmm. without without a government putting and censorship, them in jail or, right? Yeah. But what we've seen now, and this is in perfect alignment with Margaret Court, the far right and the conservatives take free speech to then espouse all their conservative ideologies, right? Mm -hmm. And put them out there, which, as you said, have negative effects on people, right? Right. And then because there is that pushback, which they feel they should be immune to, they then play victim. Well, but... And then they use the language that the left has tried very, very hard to make legitimate. Yes. So, you know, I feel bullied, we're being persecuted... We're being oppressed because this minority group is trying to assert its its meager rights. Yeah. Right? So I think it's important for me, it's important to make very clear that we don't all start from the same spot. Free speech has actually oppressed gay people throughout history. Speech has been used to contain us and to kill us, kill us but also control the ways that we love each other. And create families and relationships. So this idea that Margaret Court is being victimized now because gay people are allowed to live out of the shadows and for some people outside of the specter of violence. And I mean some people because in many, many, many countries in the world, that's not true. Gay people fear violence every single moment that they're awake. Even in countries such as the United States and Canada... You still have moments where you're like, right. uh, okay, maybe I should be more careful. Right. Or we saw in Orlando that even in our safe spaces, we're not safe. So proportion is very important here. <laughs> you know, like LGBT people are a group who have fought for every single little bit of respect and legislation that we've, that we've gotten. And we owe that to our predecessors. So, am I really going to feel bad that somebody called Margaret Court a bitch? Or told her to shut the fuck up? No. Uh, Because it's proportion here. Margaret Court is safe and sound where she is. She's privileged. She She will live a good life till she dies. Criticizing other people's relationships. In a system that have destroyed gay families for many years. She has her own church where she should... She is more than entitled to give those sermons. Yet she chooses to make them very public and put all those damaging ideas out for young queer people to hear and for them to internalize that they are not worthy enough, that they're not safe, that something is wrong with them. That the families, like the Delacqua family, the kids in those same-sex families... That they then look at their parents and 
wonder if something is wrong. Right. You know, like that, that proportional, that disproportional aspect that you're talking about, the, the negativity that's being received from what she's putting out there, unprovoked and unnecessarily is not the same. Like the, the response that Margaret Court would be having would, would pale in comparison to if she just stayed in her own lane, stayed at her church, stayed in her religious areas, gave those speeches. Like she's, that's, that's where those things belong. If you want to say like she's entitled to her opinion, she is. And that's where they belong in the church, not legislating, mm-hmm. not trying to create laws and legislation through the lens of your religion. That's crazy. And I think it's encouraging that, at least from what I've seen, the reaction has been overwhelmingly negative. The public opinion in Australia is, you know, a majority is in favor of legalizing same-sex marriage. We've seen in the U.S. the sea change over the past 20 years that has allowed same-sex marriage to become legal. And of course, marriage is not the only issue that we're fighting for, but that's that's one that we have kind of been victorious. Mm. But things change quickly. Margaret Court is clearly grasping strongly to a past that no longer exists. I've seen people say, as you said, she's entitled to her opinion. They've said, yeah, it's not maybe the nicest thing, but as long as it doesn't affect me. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, Mm. somebody actually said that to me on Twitter. And I'm just like, listen, this is as clear cut an instance where if you were so inclined, you could be an ally. Mm. If you needed the moral encouragement, (laughs) the extra encouragement to do the right thing and be an ally, this is the moment. Yeah. Like this has been teed up for you. Right. And oh no, nope, sorry, it doesn't affect me. So just let her be. Mm. No, like we have to be better than that in 2017. We do. And I think the reason we need to respond well, one of the reasons you have to respond as well is to debunk the utter rubbish that's coming out of her mouth. Because it's not just not believing in same-sex marriage. Well, it's also just lies. It's lies it's and not propaganda. An, like, some of these statistics are not an opinion. Right. They're simply lies. Saying that 92% of gays have been abused. Right. And that's... Intimating that that's why they're gay. That's why we are the way we are. I mean, but <laughs> is the abuse not coming from heterosexual family units? right crazy (laughs) it's just insanity and it's these bullshit pamphlets that clearly get handed out at her church that's where it becomes no longer a laughing matter for me it's not because it's very serious because she's not the only one believing that while she may be in the minority that minority tends to be very vocal Mm -hmm. and oftentimes become deranged true and we've seen in the u.s that from probably the late 60s on, the religious right became very organized, changed the entire public discourse on abortion. Anita Bryant? But, I mean, public opinion on abortion was not that controversial in the late 1960s and early 70s. And uh, they managed to galvanize a lot of people against it. For me, the reason that this needs a response is that we're in a relationship, in a, a loving, long-term relationship and she has attacked the very foundation of it, you know, and... And we're not even married. No, <laughs> but we are, quote, unquote, partners, mm-hmm. according to her. It's not real. And so that is dehumanizing, and it's a form of violence, 
but even beyond people in a relationship, queer people who choose to couple, uncouple, thruple, up, like have, whatever you want to have do. random sex. Like mm-hmm. these people are all under attack. We're all under attack together. We can't just cling to us being the normal right. within because the we're in a normal relationship right? that doesn't make us better. But this kind of speech needs to be called out and criticized when it happens. Otherwise, it remains normal. I get the impulse to dismiss her as being a relic, which she is. And that this way of thinking is archaic, which it is. But we have collectively fought so damn hard for so long to let this fester and just stay there unchallenged. And we should in no way, shape, or form rest in our laurels and think that, well... We we have what we have. Right. And same-sex marriage is not yet legal in Australia, so there is more to fight for mm. there. But but progress is not progress. Like, progress is not done. No, and we've seen progress reversed. Mm. So uh, Look no further than our current president. Right. And what he hopes to do with do this Congress. Do not take for granted things for which you fought really hard for, because they can go away. The majority is always there to take it back from you. Mm-hmm. Why don't we end on a bit of a happier note? Which is? Uh, thematically, it uh, it goes with it. So, tennis players Tara Moore and Connie Perrin, we recently found out from Instagram and Twitter that they are actually a couple and they're engaged. And that's mostly thanks to Jonathan Scott at Tennis.com for being one of the only people to report yes, on it. so thank you to John Scott. Uh, we actually had a request from one of our listeners named uh, Sharon Raj, who has asked us twice repeatedly yes. <laughs> to cover this. And uh, at first I was hesitant because I I just didn't really know a lot about it. And uh, and let's be real, you also was carrying a little bit of resentment still for Tara Moore for the comments that she made about <laughs> Serena a couple years back. Let's, I mean, let's be real. Man, we roasted her so bad. <laughs> it was back in 2015 when Serena was sick at the French playing Baczynski and Tara Moore tweeted something about Serena being the greatest player, but also the greatest actress. Hashtag pathetic. Mm-hmm. And we were, man, we were so rough on her. We were probably the mildest of the, <laughs> of the I know, crowd. I know. But uh, she actually hired a life coach. She said she grew up a lot. She matured since then. She's not the same person who tweeted that. And I I actually saw her recently retweet something about uh, Serena winning the Australian Open while pregnant and that being amazing. Uh, She also retweeted that How About That tweet from Eugenie Bouchard. Really? And so did did fiancé Connie Perrin. So you're saying that she scored a few points. Yeah, she possibly redeemed herself. Uh, but we should say that Tara Moore is from Great Britain. She's currently at her career high ranking of 145. Uh, her fiancé, Connie Perrin, is from Switzerland and is at 199. And, and being so fairly evenly matched in the rankings, they got to play each other right. in qualifying in Morocco. Which I like how <laughs> John Scott said possibly the first couple to play each other in the WTA. Because, because we don't know. We really don't know. Because there could have been a lot of closeted players you in the past. You know Gigi Fernandez played some of her partners in doubles. Girl. You know. <laughs> and I don't know what Martina was doing after Nancy Lieberman-Klein in the 80s. Mm-hmm. True, true. Or who she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's especially 
timely in light of the Margaret Court bullshit. Mm-hmm. And we want to say kudos and big ups to Terry Moore and Connie Perrin. We want to give a virtual audio hug to Casey Delacqua and her family mm-hmm. because she's only ever given love and positive vibes in her tennis career. Yeah. And honestly, kudos to all of those women for being out because it's not easy. No. And kudos to all the support that Casey's gotten in the last 24 hours because that has been amazing to see. Mm-hmm. Daria Gavalova, Sam Stozer came off her Twitter sabbatical <laughs> to retweet and then quote tweet. Yes. Right. Like mm. these things, we, we get a sense that people have grasped at least how important this is. Yeah. And I do, I really think that women on the WTA tour, if they were to come out, that there is uh, a real community of support among the players. You're obviously going to have folks who, the the exceptions, mm-hmm. right? But- right. So, con- but congrats to Tara Moore and Connie Perrin. That's awesome. By the way, they played in qualifying in Morocco, and Connie won, 6-1, and got the opportunity to face Pavlyuchenkova in the first round, who was the eventual champion. And uh, they actually have played doubles together, too. They reached uh, the final in Rio de Janeiro last year. Oh, mm-hmm. not the Olympics. No, the actual, the Rio <laughs> clay okay. tournament in the spring. I knew that. I just wanted to oh, okay. clar- clarify. I, yeah, I forgot that there were two. <laughs> that brings us to the end of this episode, right? Yeah, I think. The next two weeks promise to be riveting. I have high hopes. Tell us what you think about the draw, if there's something that we we said that was especially objectionable <laughs> uh, against one of your faves, or we didn't uh, big up somebody enough. If you think we're misguided in our uh, big predictions, which, I, to recap, I said that Caroline Garcia was going to make it through her quarter, mm-hmm. and you said that Pavlychenkovo was going to go deep, as well as Sam Stozer, to make yeah. the semifinals. Yes. I said that Stozer was going to beat all comers, including the number one. <laughs> okay. Well, there you have it. So, guess what? These predictions are made to be proven wrong, so feel free. Boy, we just really set ourselves up for the alt-right in Australia to come at us with some bad reviews with this episode, All right? right? <laughs> I know, we're used to it from Australia. <laughs> As usual, you can find us on Twitter, at TheBodyServe. I'm Jonathan, with a new Twitter handle. Oh. I switched from at SportsCribeCA. I always hated it. Confession. <laughs> like, you've known me, for, well, obviously you've known me for much longer than I've been on Twitter, but from the start, I hated that that handle. Mm. I only had it because it 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 matched up with like one of the few website domains I could get that I could think of in the moment when I was hastily starting this whole thing, right? Mm. And so eventually, SportsCribeCA is going to be the bodyserve.com. I already own that domain. And so I've gotten rid of SportsCribeCA, and I'm now at tennis underscore John. J-O-N. J-O-N, yeah. So at- tennis John at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at the same old domain, or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> handle, at, handle. Yes, at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. And did we say this? We are at the Body Surf. Yes, we did. Okay. On Twitter. And Instagram. That's true. And it's been a, a good couple weeks 
since we've gotten an iTunes review, so please. <laughs> Not <laughs> to sound desperate or anything. Pretty please. <laughs> Till next time.